In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Rest in peace, Richard Hall. Why couldn't God have taken the Sniggles guy instead? Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Why must everyone talk about New Zealand? Don't you think you hurt the feelings of Old Zealand? Anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. You're listening to Paratopia on 105.3 New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. No, you're probably not. No, you're probably not. This episode is dedicated to Mr. Richard Hall, who left this planet last Friday. Passed away from cancer. Dick was a legend in ufology and uh and we we miss him i wrote a short uh my first encounter with with uh mr hall on our homepage. i think the day or two days after he passed away because i really didn't know what the hell to say what do you say about a guy like that so i just told the story how i first uh encountered him and i actually i think about that that whole scenario quite a bit over the years as i get pissed off tired and and sick of all this um you know, and I, th- I think about, um, you know, what he said to me. And, it, and again, it probably meant absolutely nothing to him. It was probably just a, hey, congratulations on your talk, Jeff. And that was it. But uh, uh, it actually meant a lot to me because I knew of him for quite a while before and never thought I'd get the opportunity to actually meet him. So anyway, never got a chance to tell him that, that, you know, that uh, that that kind of gave me a lot of encouragement at the time, and and he seems to have been a good guy for that. So, this show will be dedicated to him. Like a comet blazing across the evening sky, <sighs> you know. <laughs> too soon. Like a perfect flower that is just beyond your reach, you know. It's why don't I have a mute button? Uh, is there any is there is there any mute button here on this show? I think not. Well, you know, Jeremy's the kind of guy that if there were small cooing pigeons eating their lunch on the pier, Jeremy would be the one to run screaming up through the middle of them and accidentally so, run into the ocean. Right. <laughs> like still kicking. Not enough pier. So, right. So here we go, Dr. Bruce McAbee, right? That's right. And uh, he's going to be talking about the New Zealand case, uh, which is, I mean, is a fairly well-known case, but not a lot of people know all the work that went into uh, examining the film from that and the backstory and yeah, uh, what led up to it. Um, As I'm sure you'll you hear know. in the interview, I know nothing. Well, that's okay. You, you, you needed to just keep quiet and listen for a change. That's right. 
So, I guess we'll be back after this, right? <laughs> that sounded so radio. Hey, Paratopia, it's Jeff Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney here with great friend of the show, optical physicist, UFO researcher extraordinaire, Dr. Bruce McAbee. Dr. Bruce, good to see you tonight. How are you? I am fine, thank you. Nice to be here. Outstanding. Now, tonight, we're going to be talking about the New Zealand uh, UFO case of 1978. Am I right, Bruce? Yes, December 31st, just the very end. I mean, about the last UFO case that you could have had in 1978. And this is it. Um, so we know so far it's from New. It's 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 in New Zealand. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, as I understand it, from what I've read here, uh, for some weeks UFOs have been sighted over Cook Strait. Before I guess we get into the whole thing with Quentin Fogarty and the TVs, you know, cameras and all of that rolling. What kind of the lead up you know, to it is, if you want? Yeah, that that'd be great. What's the what's the lead into all this? October 1978, Frederick Valentich disappears over the Bass Strait. That's the story of a young man flying. Uh, he's 22 or 21 or 22 years old, uh, a private pilot. He already had his pilot's license, and uh, he loved flying and so on. And I forget what date of October it was, but he takes off to fly to a place called King Island. He had to fly across the Bass Strait in order to do this, flying from Melbourne across the Bass Strait. I don't know. It might have been a distance of maybe 100 miles or something. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. In any case, while he was... Uh, he, he was too low to be on radar. So the air traffic controllers in Melbourne and the Melbourne um, air traffic control audio tape provide the only information that we have on this case other than some witnesses who happened to see uh, this airplane with a green light flying around it. The, the air traffic controller suddenly got a message from uh, Delta Sierra Jovet, which was the DSJ, the, the call sign for... Of Frederick's uh, Fred's um, plane, and he calls into the uh, air traffic control center and asks if there are any any airplanes around or any military aircraft. And the answer is no. There's no aircraft in the area. Now they couldn't pick him up because he was too low to be picked up by their antenna, mm-hmm. their radar antenna. This uh, conversation lasted some number of minutes. With Frederick describing this thing had come towards him. And flown over his head several times and was going back and forth. And, and the air traffic controller wanted him to describe what it was, what type, what type of aircraft was it. And he said it wasn't an aircraft, but he didn't know what it was. And uh, this happened, continued for some number of minutes, as I said. And um, the last message recorded from Mr. Vladish was, it's not an aircraft, it's a... And then there was a, a some sort of a banging noise and nothing. Hmm. Well, it didn't take the um, air traffic controllers long to initiate a search for the aircraft. They suspected something had happened since Fred just sort of stopped his statement in the middle of a stopped talking in the middle of a statement. And uh, he, just before that, he had said that his engine was running roughly. Uh, he, so he never described what this thing was, but it was a green had green light or something. I, I forget exactly. In any event, clearly he said clearly, clearly said it's not an aircraft. It's a and then there was nothing. Except a crunching noise or a banging noise, and the end of the you know, then his the switch on his microphone went out. This was pretty well analyzed by uh, Dr. Richard Haynes uh, a few years after the event, and he put it into a book that he wrote mm. called Melbourne Episode. 
Um, now, the connection with the New Zealand sightings that I was involved with is this. The Frederick Verlander story made national and international news in Australia. And the fact that it was getting a lot of airtime impressed, uh, well, people in the news media, I suppose, get impressed by stories that last a long time, stories that have legs, as they say. Sure. And you had Frederick Valentis' father uh, trying to defend Frederick. He, he, wasn't, he wouldn't steal the aircraft. He wouldn't try to fly to King Island to get dope and then fly it back into uh, um, Australia. Some people had thought that he had, hadn't, hadn't actually disappeared over the Bass Strait, but it disappeared in the, uh, in the outback of Australia after uh, some big drug deal or something. Mm. All sorts of theories were popping up. Bruce, did they ever find any any remnants of his plane at all? Well, when I was there in January, in February, January and February of uh, 1979, I met Valentis' father, who was still hoping that they, and by they I mean the guys way upstairs, mm-hmm. would bring back his son. But nothing has ever been found. There was no wreckage, no oil slick, nothing <laughs> found in the Bass Strait at the time. I, mean, I guess they had a several-day search. Um, nothing was ever found on land anywhere, so that ends up being a complete mystery. Along, they all suspect that it crashed into the Bass Strait and uh, sank rapidly. There's huge currents to flow there, mm-hmm. you may well imagine, between a whole continent, uh, Australia, and this uh, large island south of Australia. Um, it, it had legs. The story had legs. It continued for a long time. Then the second part of the lead-up to what I'm going to discuss, was in New Zealand, December 20 and 21, when um, aircraft known as uh, Argosy freighter aircraft, four-engine, uh, heavy, uh, old-fashioned types of aircraft, uh, were flying off the coast of New Zealand in the middle of the night, and the radar was picking up targets, and uh, the people were seeing lights doing odd things and so on, and that series of sightings by itself was quite interesting, attracted the interest of uh, some producers on a TV station called Channel, at that time it was Channel O, or Zero, in Melbourne, and um, a lot of the TV stations did some stories, interviewed the pilots and so on. Right. Well, this one particular station um, decided on December 30th that they wanted to have a uh, some sort of a audience attracting package that is a, a little doc, a mini documentary you might say mm-hmm. that they could show on New Year's Eve as, as part of the entertainment for New Year's Eve to attract people uh, to their station so they contacted a uh, they knew that one of their employees a native New Zealander who worked in Alt Melbourne worked and lived in Melbourne was on vacation in uh, New Zealand now I should point out that December in New Zealand is the middle of summer, mm-hmm. uh, just so we realize we're upside down down there. <laughs> right. And um, that was Quentin Fogarty. And, of course, Fogarty was familiar with the previous sightings. Uh, the producer guy, Dennis Leonard Lee, said, why don't you do for us a little story, five minutes worth, on the sightings on December 20th uh, and have it ready by uh, so we can use it New Year's Eve. Mm. So they contacted Quentin asked him to do this little documentary. And this was about a week before that they contacted him. So he uh, hired a cameraman from New Zealand by the name of David Crockett. And Crockett's wife ran the audio recording system, so he and his wife were there. 
And um, they interviewed a couple of the pilots on the previous events, and they interviewed uh, a couple of air traffic controllers that were involved. And, and uh, this was all material to go into Quentin Fogarty's documentary, the raw interviews and so on. Mm-hmm. And then Quentin decided to go one better and actually see if he could get on an airplane and fly the route so that he could have some really neat background footage, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so he contacted the Safe Air Corporation that ran that owned these freighter aircraft. Now the freighter aircraft were used primarily to haul things from one place to another. And on late nights they were hauling newspapers. The Wellington newspaper would be taken down to Christ Church, for example. Um, and that exactly was a newspaper flight that had been involved. One of the newspaper flights that had been involved in the previous sightings on December 20th and 21st. Okay. So now. On the night of the 30th, Clinton and his cameraman and the cameraman's wife got on board one of these uh, four-engine aircraft by permission of the Safe Air Corporation, and they took the flight. Before the plane got off the ground, the cameraman uh, videotaped the airplane starting out just to run his camera in. He ran, I don't know, 100 or so feet of film uh, with the camera sitting on the tarmac. turned out to be this was very important. Uh, f- footage for uh, analysis of the of a portion of his UFO p- film because it showed the red light on top of the co- aircraft as it rotated and flashed. Okay. So anyway, they got on board this flight, and um, that's how they happened to be there. They were asked to do a documentary on previous flights. Quentin decided to be clever and see if he could get on board one of the flights and have the cameraman film him in the belly of the aircraft talking. And so Clinton had two what they call stand-ups written already. Mm-hmm. The stand-up is where you basically stand in front of the camera and talk. So uh, the plane left Wellington, and after it was up in the air, safe for the passengers to walk around inside the belly of the aircraft. And that's exactly what they did. They set up the camera. Clinton Fogarty stood there, and they videotaped. I shouldn't say videotape. This is color movie film, 16-millimeter color movie film. They filmed him saying something like, well, we're flying on the uh, same route where the previous people had their sightings, or the previous sightings occurred, and we'll keep our eyes open. Now, he was about to start the second um, stand-up, which was, which was already written out, and said something like, we're now in Christ Church, and we didn't see anything, but wait till you see the uh, interviews that we have with the previous uh, air traffic controllers. In other words... Uh, a hook for the next section of his little mini documentary. But he never got to do the second one. Uh, you might say his whole life changed at that point. He, As the plane had been flying along and a film crew were working down the belly of the aircraft where they couldn't see anything, of course. This is just a big freighter aircraft. The only windows are in the, in the uh, command po- floor or whatever you want to call it, the, the cockpit. The pilot and co-pilot, pilot sits on the left, co-pilot on the right, the pilot um, and co-pilot were seeing, had, had noticed as they flew south. Now they had done this hundreds of times before. This was a well, uh, well-known well route to them. They noticed that there were some strange lights uh, appearing. If you had, You'd have to have a map of the two islands, but as you fly south from, um, south from Wellington, you cross the so-called Cook Strait, and then you have the South Island, the east coast of the South Island is on your right-hand side as you're flying south. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a little peninsula that sticks out uh, 
I don't know, maybe 50 miles south of the beginning of the South Island, uh, called the Kaikoura Peninsula. A little town called Kaikoura is along that coast. And the pilot and co-pilot noticed there were these strange lights. A light would come on, and then it would look like a light beamed down to the surface of the water. Then it would go off and suddenly turn on somewhere else, sort of like they were searching for something. So the pilot called up Wellington Air Traffic Control Center. Jeffrey Causer was the guy on duty there. The pilot was Bill Startup, by the way, and the co-pilot, Robert Gard. The pilot called up... Um, the uh, air traffic control center said, do you have any targets appearing on the Kaikoura coast? And the air traffic controller hadn't been watching very carefully. He knew there was only one aircraft in the air that he was responsible for at the time, and, and its radar return was perfectly healthy. There wasn't anything unusual going on as far as his, the aircraft was concerned. Mm -hmm. So they were following this uh, freighter aircraft as it went southward towards Christchurch. And the... Uh, um, <clears throat> Air traffic controller said that he had noticed some radar targets appearing on the Kaikoura coast, and so he looked some more, and then he called back to the uh, uh, airplane and said, yes, we have targets appearing and disappearing on, on the coast. <clears throat> now, that's not so unusual. That could have been radar, uh, weather-related targets. Uh, sometimes the weather could uh, cause spurious radar returns. But he thought some of these returns were much more associated with the aircraft, uh, especially as the plane continued to fly south, targets started to appear around the aircraft 20-some miles off the coast. And uh, the air traffic controller reported this, uh, this and at least in uh, a couple of instances, they seemed to get a correlation. In one case, the air traffic controller says there's a target ahead of you, like 12 miles away, uh, plane immediately comes back saying, yes, we have it. It's got a flashing or a blue light. I forget exactly the terminology. And uh, so they had this light that was ahead of the aircraft. The cameraman was sitting in a little jump seat between the pilot and co-pilot. He was restricted in his capabilities to film because of this, but uh, and he had a big film canister on the top of the aircraft. He had to be careful he didn't hit the ceiling with all its switches, the switches on the top of the, the ceiling of the uh, cockpit. So anyway, the cameraman did get some film of some blue light that was somewhere. And we know that there wasn't any blue light in the aircraft. The only, the only lights in the aircraft were either white or dull red, and they had all the aircraft lights dimmed. The captain had dimmed the lights to make sure that nobody mistake anything. Well, I should say that after the pilot and co-pilot saw these lights appearing and then radar confirmed that there were targets, the pilot then got out of his seat went over to a hole in the floor and yelled down for the film crew to come up. That was just before Quentin started his second stand-up. Mm -hmm. And the pilot said, you better get up here fast or something like that. So Quentin decided instead of doing the stand-up then, he would go upstairs to see what was going on. So as they flew along the east coast past the Kaikoura Peninsula, the cameraman tried to film, but he had trouble because he had he, the, the pilot was in the way, a co-pilot was in the way of his lens. But he did manage to get a blue light. There are, and he was 20 miles off the coast. Well, guess what? There aren't any blue lights in the aircraft, on the aircraft, or anywhere around. And at the time they were traveling along, they were heading straight for Antarctica. Mm. Uh, there wasn't anything to see there. There could not have been a, 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 some, anything for him to film, but there was. So that was the first uh, photographed UFO of the trip. 
he tried to film lights that were off the co they were close to the coast, but uh, and he did get some film, but it's so dim as to be almost uh, unusable. Okay. So they had a uh, very interesting radar occurrence as the plane flew along, when uh, all of a sudden, well, the the um, radar controller reported a number of targets that were near the aircraft. Then, over a period of a few minutes, he reported one that was behind the aircraft as it was going south. Then to the right of the aircraft. Then he said, you have a, on a <coughs> target flying in formation with you. Your target has doubled in size. <sighs> Basically, that means that this other reflecting, whatever it was, a radar reflector, had gotten so close to the aircraft that the targets had merged into one blob on the radar screen. Mm, it was okay. at this point when he told that to the captain. The captain... Uh, had turned off all the lights. They were looking out the window, the right-hand window, and uh, saw a flashing light. The, the Quentin Fogarty, the reporter, recorded these events as they were happening on the aircraft. And uh, he said he recorded a statement saying that we have a uh, we have this target on the right-hand side and it's flashing a white and green light. And then that radar target sort of drifted back behind the aircraft and uh, was gone. That essentially ended the uh, the sightings for the flight south. Uh, few people would know that that, had, that stuff had even happened uh, if it weren't for my history of it, because that was not put into any of the news stories that were uh, that were generated by this series of events. Mm. Um, that happened all between one one a.m. when the plane left. No, I'm sorry, midnight. When the plane left Wellington, approximately midnight, and then 1 a.m. when it reached Christchurch, and then at Christchurch, they had a layover about an hour and a half to take off all the newspapers, and then the plane was going to fly back to its home berth in a place called Blenheim, New Zealand, which is the north end of the South Island. So the plane had to fly back north through the area that had just come south. Now uh, this is where it really begins to get interesting. Quentin Fogarty had a pilot. I had a newspaper uh, writer, a reporter friend of his who lived in Christchurch. And Quentin had originally intended to go and visit this guy, um, maybe spend the night. He, he would arrive in Christchurch about 1 a.m. and then travel to that guy's house or have a guy pick him up or whatever. Um, and then Quentin would go back to Wellington, do his story, and, and go back to New Australia, and that would be the end of it. That was the original plan. Because of the sightings that they had on the way south, Nyari Crockett, that's spelled N-G-A-I-R-E, that's a uh, New Zealand name for a lady, uh, Nyari Crockett did not want to go back through that area on, her, on the plane. She was afraid of herself and her kids. If something happened, well, she and her husband would get, might get wiped out because of the parentless. Mm. So she refused to go back. That meant that there was one seat empty. And so... Quinn Fogarty invited his friend Dennis Grant to take that seat. And Dennis told me that he was a bit reluctant to do it. He didn't think there was anything that was going to happen that would be a worthless exercise, but because Quentin was a good buddy, and Quentin said that we, had, we actually saw some UFOs or something like that, he convinced Dennis Grant to go. So on the way north, you had the pilot, the co-pilot, two reporters, and a cameraman. And this is where you come into the uh, section of the sightings, which made national and international news. As they were climbing up out of Christchurch, heading northeast, roughly, 
there's a cloud cover about 3,000 feet. And when they burst through the cloud cover, all of a sudden they saw a bright light ahead of them and to the right. Actually, Quentin Fogarty talks about two lights, but you only ever see one in the, in the film itself. The cameraman sitting in the uh, jump seat had filmed the takeoff, and so he was all ready immediately to turn on his camera when something appeared. And so he started filming. Quentin Fogarty started describing on audio tape what was going on. I might point out as an aside, you had um, the audio. You had the audio tape from Wellington and the audio tape made by Quentin Fogarty on the plane. So these are two tape recordings, which uh, allow us to reconstruct the sighting events uh, pretty reasonably accurately in terms of time. So anyway, they were flying and I saw this bright light ahead. Quentin, as I said, talked about one very bright light and another light down below it. Maybe that was a reflection in the ocean. I'm not sure. But this one very bright light, they suddenly notice when they get to be above, above the clouds. And it stayed on their right-hand side as they traveled the next 40 miles, I don't know, in 10 minutes or whatever it was, some number of minutes, up until they got to uh, 13 or 14,000 feet. That was the altitude at which they were going to cruise for the rest of the flight. And... Um, as I said, the cameraman took film during that, and uh, you'd have to see the film to understand the, the value in terms of analysis of is this thing identifiable or not. It was picked up on the airplane radar uh, as a big target on the radar off to the right. When the uh, plane got up to um, altitude, the pilot queried the co-pilot. Should The pilot was flying the plane now co-pilot had actually flown the plane on the way south. On the way north, the pilot was flying it. He sort of looked over to Robert Gard and said, uh, shall we have a go for it? And Gard tended to agree, so the captain put the plane into a turn to the right, which sounds like a pretty gutsy thing to, to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, they had been flying with this thing on their right-hand side about ten to 8 to 10 miles away, according to the radar. They had been flying with this thing running parallel to them. And the pilot's impression was that if he turned suddenly, uh, this object wouldn't realize what was going on. If it had inertia, the inertia of ordinary aircraft, it wouldn't know what was going on. It would keep on going in a straight line, and uh, he would turn the plane, and suddenly, eventually his plane would be heading right towards it, if you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. The object keeps going north, and he turns to the right to head towards the east. Well, he turned, he has a little knob on his dashboard that allows him to turn. He put it into a two-minute orbit, which is the fastest turn he could go. Uh, this is not very fast, by the way. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not like one of these modern fighter jets where you can make a turn on a dime or something. Sure. But he starts turning and turning and turning, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting for this thing to get on the nose of the aircraft that is straight ahead, and it never does. In fact, he had the impression that it stopped its forward motion and backed up. Hmm. Well, at this point, the... the uh, cameraman and the uh, and Quentin Fogarty uh, could see that the object was not zipping away. So David Crockett decided he would try to get a better lens. Now he had been using a 100 millimeter focal length lens up to this point. He ran down down the ladder into the uh, belly of the aircraft, opened up his camera bag, pulled out a 240 millimeter lens, climbed back up into the cockpit and with Dennis Grant holding a weak flashlight or a matches, I don't know what it was, uh, David Crockett put the 240-millimeter lens on the body of the camera. This is an electric Bolex camera that he was using. Mm -hmm. And he proceeds to uh, start zooming in on the uh, on the object. 
Now the cameraman, under circumstances, would assume that he had put the camera, put the lens on correctly. And if so, the thing to do is to zoom in and then focus. So that's what he did. Unfortunately, as we found out later, he did not mount the lens correctly. So what happened was the optical system of this lens actually went through focus and out the other side. Mm. The cameraman was expecting the zoom lens to give him a bigger image, and it sure as hell did give him a bigger image because it was way out of focus. <laughs> but nobody knew that until a lot later. At the time, he thought that he was seeing the actual shape of the object, sort of oval-shaped with rings of light going around it, he said. This is an actual description that appears on Fogarty's audio tape. But as I said, we found out later that was all distorted. Anyway, the uh, the object um, stayed for a while on the right-hand side. Even though they had turned to the right, the object stayed on the right-hand side. And then after failing to get it on the um, nose of the aircraft, after flying towards it, what he thought was towards it for several minutes, the captain got disgusted and turned the airplane to the left to go back to the original direction. At that point, according to the co-pilot, this object kept stationed with us as we turned. I think about it a minute. That means that the direction from the, the sighting direction from the airplane to the object stayed the same while the airplane was turning to the left. That sort of means that the object had to be moving pretty fast on the outside of the turn, as it were. Right. So, but then it did drop back, and Quentin Foley thought he was the last person to see it with his head pressed against the pilot, the co-pilot's uh, window, looking straight as, as nearly straight down as he could. The airplane seemed to fly over it, and that was it. Hmm. Um, by this time, um, Fogarty had had enough. <laughs> he recorded <laughs> a little message saying, "Well, I've had about enough of UFOs for one night. I hope, hope we don't see any more." Right. The next message, another couple of minutes later, is, "Well, after that last message, well, now we've got another one." This was as the, the, the plane had flown northeast from Christchurch, made a right turn when it was 40 miles off from Christchurch, made a right turn, had flown southeast for a period of a couple of minutes, turned left and headed back towards the northeast, and actually it was flying almost west-northwest by the time the, uh, the pilot had gotten back on track. Mm -hmm. So the plane is now heading almost back towards Wellington. And... Uh, all of a sudden, the radar guy says, you have a big target uh, south of you, uh, near what was known as the Cape Campbell uh, uh, Peninsula, or Cape Campbell, which is the uh, the, the upper right-hand corner, if you wish, of the South Island of New Zealand. And um, at this point, the uh, word came back from the co-pilot, who was now communicating with the uh, air traffic controller, that, yeah, we've got it, we see it, and it's got a big flashing light. And uh, Quentin Fogarty described a light that seemed to be flashing red and orange colors. And the cameraman filmed a, uh, a light which was flashing at one, we found out later, it was flashing at essentially one hertz, one cycle per second. Uh, a very bright white light would then shrink down. The image on the film starts out big and white, perfectly white, a large image, rather large, uh, shrinks down to a small combination of red and orange which in a few frames were what I call stationary frames where the camera isn't moving by hand, by vibration, mm -hmm. um, shows a triangle with an orange light on top of two red lights. Mm. Uh, a search was made of the whole New Zealand coast that could have been filmed, and there was nothing like that anywhere. So anyway, that basically ended the flight. Um, the, the plane flew to Blenheim, uh, having had all these sightings, 
the first thing that Corton went forward, he did as soon as there was enough light, was that he filmed the uh, captain standing there discussing these sightings, and uh, then Quentin Fogarty took the film from the cameraman. The film had not been developed. Nobody knew what was on it, if anything was on it. Right. He took the film from the cameraman, got himself on a flight to Wellington, uh, packed up everything that he needed, got himself on a flight to Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he had been up the whole of December 30th, and he was working. The, the sightings took place on December 31st, between 1 a.m. and um, about 3 a.m. He was still up when he went to uh, uh, from Wellington to Australia. I guess he got somewhat shut-eye on the airplane. That must be a, I don't know, two or three-hour flight anyway, three or maybe four hours, I'm not sure. But when he got to Melbourne, he stayed up for a day or two straight. Uh, first of all, he had to put together this uh, documentary to show on uh, New Year's Eve. And then there were all sorts of questions that came after that. Uh, this documentary that we put together was uh, a half-hour documentary with essentially no investigation other than his interview of the pilot. And they developed the film. They found that they had images, but unfortunately the film camera was not electrically coupled to the tape recorder. So mm. there was no way of them knowing exactly what portion of film corresponded to what section of Quentin Fogarty's tape. We were able to figure that out reasonably well later on, but at that time they had no way of knowing. Right. So when they did this documentary, they showed Quentin talking about what had happened, and they showed the film, and what Quentin was saying, they most usually didn't agree with what was appearing on the film. Uh, they, in, in the film, they took the best images. They didn't use anything on the flight south. They didn't use the flashing light uh, the last thing that they got, most of what they concentrated on was the sighting out of Christchurch, which I mentioned was a big bright light that they picked up on airplane radar. So anyway, that that film documentary was sold throughout the world. I was told it was they were selling it for fifty thousand uh, dollars. Japan bought it, English bought it, England bought it, and CBS um, Walter Cronkite, who just passed away. He uh, he got a copy of the film. It was first shown in the United States uh, the night of the 1st of January. And Walter Cronkite had always signed off his evening news with, uh, and that's the way it is, on such and such a date, blah, 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 blah. Right. This time he said, and that's the way it is, or is it? Um, January 1st, <laughs> 1979. <laughs> nice. This was just after they had had about a five-minute five, five minute, uh, discourse from, they had shown, uh, well, CBS had interviewed Alan Hynek and Philip Glass uh, after showing them this documentary from um, from uh, from Melbourne. Uh, so they had asked Glass and, uh, and Hynek, you know, for what they thought this was. Of course, Glass said, well, it must be uh, explainable as something. And Hayek tried to uh, um, say he, he didn't know, except with, with an investigation, maybe they could find out what it was and so on. Mm. Uh, anyway, that's how this whole thing happened. And I got involved in it. I saw the show, I saw the uh, CBS show, and um, I thought to myself, well, somebody 12,000 miles away will get to look at the film and maybe make up their mind as to what's going on. So it's interesting, but. That's about it, because here I live in Washington D. I was living in Washington D.C. 
Washington, D.C. area. I didn't think there was any chance of, uh, it never even crossed my mind (laughs) that I would uh, see anything uh, from this case that was happening in New Zealand. Right. Now, I was a member of NICAP, National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomena, back in those days. NICAP was still barely hanging on by its fingernails at that point with a big drop in membership from what it had had in the 1960s. And it was being run by a guy named Jack Acuff, who was basically charging NICAP. All the money that NICAP went in basically went to his management firm to manage the, uh, to write a, a, a newsletter for NICAP and so on. Mm. Anyway, he called me up on a Thursday and said, they're bringing the New Zealand film here. You want to see it? Mm. And I thought for about four microseconds, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been five microseconds, I don't know. <laughs> really a long time, six or seven microseconds. Well, anyway, it just so happens that they did bring it here. And the week after it happened, I had it at my house for analysis. And that then begins another whole big long story about how the analysis went on. Uh, well, let me ask was, you, do, you, do you think that's where the, um, the Walter Cronkite story that he saw UFO that Bill Nell tells comes from? No, no, no. That's, that's his own sighting, supposedly. And it was years. It was some number of years before the New Zealand case. Mm-hmm. It's my impression from what Nell has said. Uh, other people have did, have said that that's a crock. Anyway, I don't know right. myself about uh, Cronkite saying. Um, Cronkite always seemed to be he tend to pan the subject. Um, it just so happened, quite coincidentally, that uh, speaking of Cronkite, he had on one or both of the authors of an article that appeared appeared in a refereed science journal, a science journal called Applied Optics, on 1st of December, 1978. And that's why I say this is coincidentally. December 1st, 1978, the front page of Applied Optics showed a bug, an insect, uh, uh, that was uh, impaled on a Tesla coil with uh, a corona coming off its antennae. Hmm. And inside was an article, uh, Insects as UFOs written by uh, two uh, insect guys who studied insects uh, from Florida. I think they worked at Florida State. And they were arguing that um, glowing insects, insects that were flying between uh, in the fields of, in high electric fields like occur near thunderstorms or certain types of clouds, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, might be perceived as a glowing craft traveling along. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> this article, which I call a buggy, this I call a buggy UFO hypothesis. <laughs> this article okay. uh, was uh, based on insects. Well, it was based on a number of sightings that occurred in the Uintah Basin in the late '60s, written about by uh, 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 Frank Salisbury in a book called The Utah UFO Display. Maybe one of you guys have read that. I don't know. Frank Salisbury is supposed to be speaking at the uh, MUFON Symposium, I think it is. Uh, hmm. been years since he's been involved in UFOs, but he was a plant physiologist. Uh, but he got interested in the subject, wrote that book. They used that book as their primary source, these two guys um, from Florida. Uh, hmm. And this, as I said, was published. And the reason I mention it is, well, there's actually two reasons, but the first reason was Walter Cronkite had one of these authors on. TV the, the day that that was published, December 1st. And uh, so here's the skeptical Walter Cronkite 
uh, UFO skeptic publicizing what amounts to uh, a garbage UFO explanation. <laughs> but that's okay. Any explanation is better than none. Right. Now, that did, in fact, play into this New Zealand situation because many months later, I was able to get an article published uh, about the New Zealand case, and I was able to do it because of the fact that they had published that, that buggy UFO article. Mm. Uh, but meanwhile, back to, the U back to the New Zealand case, I uh, talked by telephone with the pilot, the co-pilot, the air traffic controller, and then um, the, uh, I, I said to uh, the producer guy who brought the film to the United States that it looked interesting to me, it looked good, but um, I'd have to do an on-site investigation before I'd go public with anything. Mm -hmm. And you know, check out everything that I thought was everything that I thought was true. And of course, I didn't know half of it. <laughs> that wow. Time. But anyway, they did take me down to uh, New Zealand. I spent two weeks there talking to everybody. I just barely got in, got got to talk to the people because they had the pilot and co-pilot in particular are very patriotic guys. They had assumed that the New Zealand Department of Scientific and Industrial Research or some New Zealand Air Force would interview them about what they had seen, and they were sure that none of the explanations that would have been thrown around would work. The day that this sighting occurred, it was published in the newspapers in Christchurch and elsewhere, um, because of the, although the sighting occurred early in the morning, they were able to get it into the newspapers anyway. And the first explanation was claimed was Venus, which uh, made no sense because Venus wasn't even up that, at that point. Then they uh, thought maybe it was um, the planet Jupiter and then drug runners and light reflected off the breasts of mating mutton birds was presented. Was presented. <laughs> All sorts of garbage, weirdo explanations, uh, including unburned meteorites by Sir Bernard Lovell of the Joe Drill Bank Radio Observatory in England. Sir Bernard Lovell was scathing against the press for publicizing this as being possibly extraterrestrials. Or it was probably... Meteorites. What he didn't know was these these quote meteorites were seen for ten minutes or more. Right. Um, meteorites, of course, meteors as they're up in the sky last for seconds at the most. So anyway, all these explanations didn't convince didn't convince the air crew that they had seen any of these things. They wanted to make a straightforward report to their air force, but their air, according to uh, uh, Bill uh, Startup, told me that he was finally invited by the air force and. Uh, Second or third, third week in January, to go to some office and describe what he saw. So he went there and he said, "Well, what happened basically was they sat me down and then they started explaining to me what I saw." And uh, he didn't like that at all. It didn't agree at all with what he thought. So at that point, he was about ready to talk to anybody. And uh, when I flew there after 24 hours worth of flight and eight hours of sleeping or something like that, I spent eight hours. Uh, with the air traffic controller and convinced him that I knew something about radar and therefore uh, I seemed to be on the level. At which point the pilot and the co-pilot uh, were ready to talk to me and so I was able to interview everybody ultimately uh, that was involved and put together a big story on the whole thing and uh, you can see pieces of it on my website. And actually you can see a pretty good whole history of the event on, on, on the website. With a particular emphasis on analysis of a uh, a couple of sections. A section of video where they came out of Christchurch and saw that light after being up at 3,000 feet 
that were, a number of explanations were attempted for that, the Venus and Jupiter and so on. The uh, only remaining one after all the others died was a squid boat. And uh, that may not may sound a little weird, but it just so happens the, the squid fleets around the world use very bright lights to lure the squid up to the surface so they can fish at night as well as in the daytime. Mm. And in particular, the Japanese squid fleet goes into New Zealand fishing waters, or fishing waters near New Zealand, every December. And this mm. December, like every other one, there was a squid fleet out there. In fact, the pilot and co-pilot had seen it 110 miles off the coast. Well, there was a suggestion that maybe there was a single squid boat on the surface, of course, uh, just north of uh, um, Christchurch. And that's what had been seen. Mm. Well, that made little sense that based on the pilot's, the co-pilot's description of picking it up on the radar and it made, keeping, right. keeping station as, the turn, as they turned to the left and um, it seemed to be traveling along with them and so on. Mm. Uh, but the big comparison was to actually get a photo of a squid boat uh, and a photo uh, and compare that with the one of the images, the essentially focused image on, on David Crockett's uh, film. Uh, mm -hmm. as I, I you remember I said he put the put the lens on wrong, 240 millimeter lens. He put it on incorrectly, and as he zoomed out, he went through focus. So you can grab some images that are near the focus point, and this tells you roughly what it looks like. And one thing that is missing, well, when you look at the squid boat picture taken with a 220-millimeter 200, lens, I think it was, from a distance of 10 miles, you see the very bright squid boat, and you also see what I call a beard <laughs> hanging downwards from the main image. That is the reflection in the water. Right. You don't see any reflection in the water in uh, Crockett's uh, film of the UFO. Now, because of the restricted field of view of the 240-millimeter lens, you could have had a uh, um, film the squid boat without getting a reflection in the water. That is a reflection that's attached. The, the reflection in the squid boat, when you look at the squid boat photo, the reflection in the water is immediately below the squid boat. There's no gap. Okay. There would be a gap if the squid boat were fishing up above the water. Mm. So if, considering the field of view of the 240-millimeter lens, if the squid boat were fishing above 3,000 feet, then you could uh, take a make make a film of it without having any reflection in the water appear in the film. And would that would that be just not many squid boats can fish from an altitude of 3,000 feet? <laughs> would the uh, would the absence of the water reflection be from the focal you know what you're looking at in, in focus or out of focus no, or slightly in or out not, or distance? No. The most the most the best focused image that you can find does not show any hint at all hmm. of reflection in the water. Hmm. Curious. Uh, so, uh, uh, bottom uh, line uh, is that it seems to be unexplained. i got to ask this. I mean, at any point during these events, the was the, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, did they ever do anything, say anything, scramble jets, anything? Uh, the New Zealand Air Force guys, okay, this happened in the early morning of December 31st, uh, and it made national news that morning, and everybody was talking about it by that night and so on. The New Zealand Air Force, on it was either the night of the first or the night of the second, sent up an airplane to see if they could see anything, mm -hmm. and sure enough, they could see the squid fleet 100, 100 miles off the coast, 
and the guy, the Air Force guy who organized that flight, said he was sure that the Squid Fleet, Squid Fleet played some role in this sighting. Hmm. Well, now, according to the co-pilot who was sitting on the right-hand side of the craft, um, well, I, he was on the right-hand side on the way down and on the right-hand side on the way up, but on the way up he was on the east side of the plane. He said he could see the Squid Fleet. He could see the glow from the Squid Fleet way out there. Hmm. So they knew what the Squid Fleet was, and this object was nowhere near it. This object was close to them. Is there anything in the films that, that and you've seen them all here, uh, that give you any sense of structure at all? Um, or did anyone that was uh, there, any of the witnesses, report a structure of any kind? Uh, except for um, Crockett's spurious description of the thing being oval-colored with rings of light going around. Uh, as I said, that it turned out that that was a combination of being defocused and looking at an angle Mm-hmm. Looking at an angle through the window glass that caused a, uh, um, an aberration in the glass that caused these rings of light. It's kind of weird, but I was able to duplicate that effect. Okay. But anyway, uh, except for that, nobody tried to give a real description, although it got close to it when Quentin Fogarty talked about the last light they were seeing as having um, red and orange uh, among the lights, he says. Now, on the film, the last section of film, which shows the flashing light that flashed once per second, approximately, that did show go. the images oscillate from large white, and, of course, they're all, almost all of them are distorted by camera motion because the cameraman was just holding this camera on his shoulder. But there are, each time, each time the camera swings to the right, let's say, he applies a force, a twisting force that brings it back to the left. There's a period of time when the camera is not moving. The short okay. period, you got running. He was running a camera at a slow rate compared to usually unusually slow rate of 10 frames per second. But so whenever the, the restoring force caused the motion to stop and reverse, there would be what I call still frames when the camera wasn't moving when it was still. And you look at these still frames and you see when they're right, when they're white, they're large, I don't know, millimeter or something like that, large uh, images that have. No coloration at all, just plain white, overexposed images. And then, as you follow through a cycle of um, ten, uh, 10 frames per cycle, approximately, the uh, images shrink down, and you can find some still frames which show this orange dot above two red dots, making a triangle, nearly an equilateral triangle. So this does seem to show some sort of structure or shape to whatever was out there. My conjecture was that the light on the top, the orange light, was what would oscillate to be extremely bright white and then dim down. And when it got dim, then you were able to see the red lights below it. But that's only a conjecture on my part based on looking at the film a lot. Mm. Now, this section of film with the flashing light is uh, of interest. As I said, it was apparently picked up on radar. It was about 20 miles ahead of the aircraft. And uh, um, it's a, a section of film where uh, Philip Glass and I had a big, long discussion over what it could be in his book called UFOs, the Public Deceived, published in 1983 or 84. He discussed the New Zealand sightings. And, one of the, and, and of course, he went for the squid boat explanation for the object that was seen just north of Christ Church. For this flashing light, he uh, argued that it was the top light of the aircraft, which was a red rotating beacon 
the top light of the aircraft reflected from a propeller blade on the right side. And he said, and he argued that the cameraman was filming out the right-hand window. Everybody else was looking straight ahead of the aircraft at this flashing light. But class argues the cameraman was filming out the right-hand window so that he could get the reflection on the uh, propeller blade of this red light on top of the aircraft. Now, it sounds like a little restraint and a little bit of a strained theory. Mm. He published that, even though I had demonstrated to him uh, several years earlier that even if the cameraman had filmed the red light directly, he would not get images similar to the extremely overexposed white images that, were, that made up part of the cycle of this uh, flashing light UFO. Mm. In other words, when Quentin Fogarty... I mean, when David Crockett, before the whole flight started, when he, when David Crockett set up his camera on the air, on the tarmac and filmed the airplane, he also filmed the top beacon when it was shooting directly at the camera as right. it rotated around. And when that happens, you get on film, and this also happens with CCDs and other things, by the way. Overexposure wipes out the color capability. In the uh, case of the red red beacon shining right directly at the camera you get an image that had a yellowish center with a red ring around it. That would be, if you actually got to overexposure at the center of the image, that would be white in the center, then, the red, and then yellowish around that, and then, red, and then a, a red ring, and a red ring on the outside is there because light in the film hits the film, scatters sideways, and decreases in amplitude as it scatters sideways, and finally you get the intensity low enough so that the correct color can be represented mm. by the film. So anyway, I had physics. I had a physical argument that proved that it could not have been the beacon on top of the aircraft. There was no other light source remotely like this anywhere in the vicinity. Phil nevertheless went ahead and published his explanation for it, and uh, using his typical uh, classic technique, said, "Well, if it wasn't that, then it must be something that's impossible." <laughs> that's not the word right. he used, but he <laughs> right. tried to make it look like it was ridiculous to assume that it was anything other than the light on the top. Even though, as I said, I had proven to him that the physics rejected that. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, that, that sort of makes the, uh, the New Zealand case interesting from the point of view of the skeptics. Right. Another thing right. about it is it got into the Supplied Optics Journal that I mentioned before. When the buggy UFO hypothesis was, was published, within two weeks I had written a letter to the editor saying that it was impossible. And the editor sent back a, a letter to me saying, well, I will hold on to your letter to see if I get any more responses. And if, I, if not, then I will, I will be amenable to publishing some portion of your letter. Mm -hmm. That was in December, January time frame of 78, 79. So in the meantime, then, while I'm waiting for the letter, for the editor to make up his mind, I got involved with the New Zealand case. And uh, along about March, I tried to get something on the New Zealand case published in Nature. They sent me back, a, uh, I wrote an article, I sent it to Nature, and they said, we presume that somewhere there's being there's a, a study going on which will uh, uh, clarify the matters or whatever, implying that whatever I had done didn't, didn't count. And <laughs> so they rejected my paper. It was soon after that that I got a letter from the editor of Applied Optics saying, well, I haven't had any more responses, so I'll be willing to publish a shortened version of your article. At that point, I made a leap of faith, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from Edgar Mitchell. Um, 
No, who's the astronaut who wrote A League of Faith? Uh, uh, Cooper. Yeah, Cooper. Gordon Cooper. Anyway, um, I wrote to the uh, editor of, the, of Applied Office, and I said, I appreciate you know your, that you would uh, accept this, but I, let me make a suggestion that I have something even closer to uh, optics. And I went ahead and pointed out that I had calculated the brightness of this object based on the exposure level of the film, the optical constants of the uh, lens system, the time, the shutter time, a whole bunch of different things that go into calculating, and including the radar distance and atmospheric effects. So in other words, I calculated that this thing was the equivalent brightness to several hundred thousand watts of electric light bulbs. Mm. Whatever it was, gener whatever, whatever it was, if it had been light bulbs, there was a couple hundred thoughts, watts worth of light bulbs generating. Mm. And uh, since this was an optical calculation, it had, had an equation in it and so on, the, the, pilot, the uh, editor said, yeah, he would be more amenable to publishing this than he was to my response to the Buggy UFO article. <laughs> so he published my first, the first of uh, three uh, articles on this New Zealand case in August of um, 1979. And my article was published in there, <clears throat> and in the article I dared to say, as a sort of as a footnote almost, that there had been no identification of this light. I calculated how many watts equivalent power it was, but nobody knew what it was. Now, the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research in New Zealand had a couple of guys whom I had talked to when I was there in January. They had originally thought that this was the planet Venus uh, being visible over the horizon 10 minutes before it rose, which was right. a bit of a strain. But um, I sent them a copy of my article to be published in Applied Optics. They appreciated that, they said, and they wrote their own rebuttal, claiming that it was a squid boat. Hmm. So um, then I, uh, and they published, their article was published, uh, saying basically that my article calculated the, the brightness correctly, but the still the, the light source was in fact a squid boat. And that was published in December of 1979. Well, of course, I knew what their result, what their paper said, because they sent it to me before it was published. And I started to do a rebuttal to it and uh, sent that to the editor of Applied Optics. And um, he ran into some political problems with a high-powered optician uh, who basically said that uh, this whole argument was stupid and there's no point in publishing it in Applied Optics. Mm. I uh, made an appeal to Peter Sturrock, who knew this guy uh, who was complaining. And uh, apparently Peter convinced him that uh, I should have my chance at rebuttal. <laughs> so a little bit of political nice. pressure required here. I finally got the article, my rebutting article in, um, in June of 1979. So that's three, now these were letters to the editor, short articles, but that's three publications in a referee journal. As far as I know, it's still the only situation where a particular UFO case has been argued out in the referee literature. Right. Uh, amazing hmm. as that may seem. I mean, it's 30 years from that now. It's crazy. Well, um, let me ask you. How rigid, that shows how rigid the refereed conventional literature is. They don't want to well, get yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It only because I, I was able to pull a bait and switch. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? Um, the, the, I guess the big question for me, and something I've always wondered about this, is what. 
what became of Quentin Fogarty and and what what was his life like after all this was done? Well, Leonard Lee was the producer who had suggested that Fogarty do a documentary on because Leonard Leonard Lee had noticed how much how the, the legs that the Frederick Valentis story had. So he thought he'd be able to ca- capitalize on the December 20 and 21st sightings. He had, obviously had no idea that Fogarty would be a first-hand witness. Mm-hmm. Leonard Lee, both of, both those gentlemen uh, got divorced and remarried, I guess, in the following years. Uh, the, it put a strain on both their lives, but, but of course in particular Fogarty, because uh, he was the guy who was on the spot, as it were, for either being an idiot or whatever you want to think, uh, for having seen these things. Um, I guess it affected the pilot and co-pilot somewhat too. Well, I'm not. Uh, I don't. They didn't really talk about it that much. The pilot was well respected by uh, beforehand, and I think um, people didn't think he was nuts. That he really had seen something. They just didn't know what it was. Uh, if you were to go down there, well, I just today read uh, the most recent uh, article on Tim Printy's website. I don't know if you know that, who he, who he is. Sure. Uh, and in his most recent, uh, let's see, what's he call it? The Sunlight, S-U-N-L-I-T-E. Mm-hmm. He's supposedly taking up where Phil Class left off of the Skeptical UFO Newsletter, S-U-N. And at the very end of this uh, most recent issue, he's talking about, uh, he made a comment that um, the NOVA program had uh, had pretty well uh, explained, he didn't say it this way, but basically saying the NOLA program had pretty well explained the New Zealand sightings. And I've got to find his uh, email address and send him a scathing message saying that there's no way. <laughs> the bottom, what I'm trying to say is, if you went there, you would find a lot of people, probably most of them, would still would always say, well, that's been explained, hasn't it? When I was going to go to New Zealand, I had to get a visa, so I went to the New Zealand embassy. And I walk up to the desk to get a visa, the little, and, I, and the girl asked me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to uh, New Zealand, and, uh, and, well, she wants to know why. I said, I'm going to investigate the New Zealand side. And she says, well, hasn't that already been explained as uh, Venus or something? People picked up on the explanations, and there were so many explanations offered. Um, sometimes people make the illogical assumption that the more explanations there are, the greater the probability that the case has been explained. Right. Whereas, in fact, it's the other way around, because <laughs> there should be only one explanation. Right. Uh, anyway, um, the general feeling is that uh, those things were all explained, and that's just not true. Uh, that it just, but it takes a lot of effort to understand why the explanations fail. I'm surprised to hear that that Quentin didn't really. Uh, this was not like a big boost to his career or anything. I mean, I'm surprised no. that this wasn't, you know. He was almost like a walking zombie when I uh, was there uh, in uh, late January, early February of 1979. He had he, he was living through the initial throes of uh, being part of the news instead of somebody commenting on it. And uh, yeah, he uh, he's uh, he's happily happily situated now, I guess. Uh, on the 25th anniversary. Uh, ninety in 2003, December 2003, he tried to get some interest in doing a 25-year retrospective, find somebody who was willing to put together you know, a documentary on those sightings from 25 years before, and he was not able to do it. He tried again on the 30th, 
uh, it was last summer that he was contacting me to see if we if could get somebody interested in doing a 30-year retrospective that would have been shown last December. He, he wrote a book about it, a book called, oddly enough, Let's Hope They're Friendly, because that was a term that he used while they were flying south, trip south, and he began to realize that there was some radar targets were being picked up around the aircraft and they were seeing lights and so on. I think that I think that's when it happened. Anyway, somewhere along the line, he, he recorded himself saying, let's hope they're friendly. Um, wow. the, pilot and the pilot also wrote a book. So there were two books that came out of this, one by the pilot, one by Quentin. Hmm. And, of course, a lot of papers that I published. Right. Has there been anything else in that general area since? I mean, has it been a hotbed and then cooled off and... And, and, and cycled like some other ones? There have been other sightings, of course. Uh, uh, sightings over the years in New Zealand and certainly tons of them in Australia and so on. Uh, I haven't been directly involved with any others. Mm. Um, this one I, I like in particular, though. I put it at the top, let's say one of the top ten in civilian UFO history anyway, because um, it's a multiple witness sighting. Right. You had five sets of eyeballs on what was going on at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it involved ground radar, and you had the radar controller and the technician involved with that. Right. Uh, and uh, it was um, a multiple witness that was filmed. It was taped. There were two tape recordings, one on the airplane and the air traffic control center tape in Wellington. And mm-hmm. then there was um, the color movie film, 16-millimeter color movie film. Right. You put all those things together, and you've got a unique case. Yeah, yeah. Certainly covered a lot of angles for that. I mean, what we've seen on you know general TV, History Channel, what have you, that goes over uh, the New Zealand case, and they never, of course, devote enough time to it. It's usually a three-minute segue right. to another case. Um, we saw the film at top speed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which I look at it and I go, yeah, and... I think Paul Kimball is the only guy to shoot that film at approximately the right speed because I have a 16 millimeter film analyzer that I can run at either 8 or 12 frames a second. Mm-hmm. And the film was shot at 10 frames a second. But usually what they do is they use a regular 16 millimeter projector, which is running at 24 frames a second. Right. 24 frames a second, obviously things go zipping by twice as fast as they should. Exactly. So, um, uh, you don't you don't get the right impression of what's going on. Well, yeah, I mean that, and and I think most of what they've chosen to show on network TV has just been a white dot or an orange dot or orange smear. At, at any point in this, um, I, I mean, I don't think that these guys would get as excited to film every last second of what they could get on these cameras by squeezing up between pilots and shoving themselves against windows. Um, if this weren't pretty dramatic to them at the time, is there at any point, is there, and I'm talking about during sightings of, of unusual lights, is there any ever a point where someone turns on a cabin light or uh, y- you see a, a kind of a window strut or something in comparison yeah. to what, to give yourself some distance of yeah. comparable? When the, while the plane was flying northeastward out of Christchurch. Mm-hmm. As I said, the cameraman video filmed the takeoff from the jump seat. But as soon as his light appeared, or within a minute after the light appeared, he got out of the jump seat and crouched down behind the co-pilots. 
this light was to the right-hand side, so he was able to film out through the right-hand side window. Mm-hmm. Now, at one point, he unzooms and brings into view a little meter, meter, M-E-T-E-R, uh, an amp meter, I think it was, that's on the wall of the uh, aircraft below the window. So you have the UFO light and you have the meter in the same framing for, I don't know, some number of seconds. Okay. And we know where that meter was. Uh, the pilot was able to point it out to me, and I was able to get a crude angle of, of view because the, the image of the meter doesn't appear as a perfect circle, but more as an elliptic, looking at okay. looking at the meter obliquely instead of straight on. Right. So I confirmed that the pilot, the, the, the cameraman, was looking I don't know, 40 degrees or something like that to the right, or straight ahead, whatever the angle was at that time. Okay. But that that is background footage, and although he doesn't have footage of the of the cockpit at the same time as a UFO, uh, okay. he does he did uh, in a couple of places back. He turned the camera so he could he could see the meters ahead of the front the front panel of the aircraft. The ammeter was on the right hand side or the right hand side of the, of the uh, co-pilot, but he when he was sitting on the jump seat he would unzoom. And get the um, the control the meters and stuff that are on the control panel right in front of the pilot co-pilot. Hmm. So he did provide background footage. Okay. Speaking of meters, was there anything in the uh, in the aircraft cockpit that they noticed in the way of electrical disturbances or anything like that in the presence of these things? No, nothing. That, nothing that they told me about anyway. Okay. All right, Jeremy, turn it loose. What do you got? <laughs> Um, well, I'm just wondering how many of um, cases like this where, where there are so many witnesses and radar and all that, um, are, are there any where there is a structured object or is it always a light that people assume is a structured object? Uh, you're talking about other cases where you might have radar visual or something? R- well, yeah, just where you have... Uh, all these various pilots and radar and all that sort of stuff, where where everyone comes to a consensus opinion that that there's that they're looking at, you know, a craft of some sort, but really what they're capturing is a light. Um, is there uh, anything where they've actually captured a craft or reported seeing a craft? Well, there's, um, I think there are radar visual cases, and certainly there are multiple witness visual cases where you where people are seeing a craft. This would typically be a daytime case for. You can see a structure as opposed to just being able to see a, a light off in the distance. Um, there are certainly are daytime cases where people inside, for example, inside an aircraft looking out, and somebody on the ground might see the same thing at the same time. Mm. Um, I'm not aware of any case that combines radar, multiple witness, uh, audio tape recordings at the time, and film. Mm. If you had radar added, then you had one of the modern video cameras, for example. Because that would record sound if you if you dare say anything. But well, my having seen lots of videos, <laughs> I find that people typically don't say anything. They'll videotape something, you know, and it's there and it's moving around. And they might say, "Well, I see a bright light." Um, they're not very descriptive of what's going on. Uh, they forget to say something. Now, I, I'm I'm not at all a photo analyst guy, so I'm going to have to ask the dumb questions, uh, which include this: um, Is it? Possible to um, to blow up to such a great extent any of these other older case um, you know photos or video in the same way that you were able to do with Gulf Breeze 
In other words, the Gulf Breeze UFO was just sort of a tiny dot, and then you blew it up, and then you saw that it had windows and structure and all that sort of stuff. Is that possible to do with any of these older cases? You mean like New Zealand? Are, are you yeah. talking about just people, photo, photographs in general? Well, I'm, I'm in general, but New Zealand specifically, sure. Well, I, I have blown them up. I mean, when I was analyzing these things, I took my projector. This is a movie, so you have to use a projector. Uh, I took my projector and uh, would make the film frame of the projector several feet uh, in size, and that would make the image itself come out to be, I don't know, a quarter of an inch, half an inch, an inch in diameter, depending on well, how big it was on the film, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you very, you, you wouldn't, when you blew these images up, you wouldn't necessarily see any sha- any structure other than the overall shape of the image, okay. except for the situation with the flashing light, which, I, as I said, when the image, you get this very bright, round, white, overexposed image, then it would shrink over a period of frames. It would shrink down to the point where you get an orange light on top of two red lights, making a triangle. Mm. which uh, is uh, interesting because that does seem to show some sort of structure out there. Something's going on. These blobs are separated. Uh, There's definitely a shape out there. Uh, And uh, with with the New Zealand thing, with the first radar capture, uh, I just want to be clear that that the the shape of the object didn't change, right? It was just that the radar made it different, made the shape of it different as, as it got closer? Right? Uh, I don't know. Oh, you mean the the case where the target doubled in size? Yeah. The, the airplane target. Right. Well, now you, have, you have to imagine that the the air traffic controller is watching this line, a radio line that sweeps around and around and around. And each time it goes past the airplane, it, it gets bright for one small region, which corresponds to uh, the uh, resolution, the angular resolution of the radar beam itself. So each time it swings around, once every 15 seconds, you get a burst of light where the airplane is. Well, he was also getting small bursts of light, apparently, where this unknown was. And it appeared behind the aircraft, and then a, another sweep later, two sweeps later, it appeared to the right side of the aircraft. And then in, in, in the next sweep, the airplane target seemed to be twice as big. Mm. And that's when he said, you have a target flying in formation with you. Your target has doubled in size. Wow. Um, and uh, there's no way to explain that. I uh, wrote a paper. I have a paper about that particular incident as a uh, unexplainable radar event. I mean, it can be explained if you assume there was a reflective object out there flying next to the aircraft, but that's about the only explanation. <laughs> and I guess I just I have a question about Phil Class, which is um, I'm sure you at least got to know him on on some level. Uh, you ever get yeah. to, did you ever? Uh... We, had, we had about, <laughs> I'd say, more than 1,200 single-spaced pages of correspondence between us <laughs> in case alone. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> did you ever ascertain what, what it is about him that he was so adamant that everything had to have a, a, a conventional explanation? Well, you could say he was, he was an honest skeptic and uh, believed um, that there was nothing there. Uh, but he always, he must have had an agenda in the sense that he was always, he couldn't allow anything to get through. In this book, UFOs, the Public Deceived, one of the chapters in the book talks about the Warren, Minnesota uh, case involving Officer Johnson. Uh, I don't know if either of you are familiar with that. That was a case where he saw 
this, in the middle of the night, this Officer Johnson is driving along his normal route, and he sees a light off in the in a field and thinks, uh-oh, it might be a crashed aircraft, so he, uh, or somebody needing help or something, so he goes driving towards it, and all of a sudden this light moves rapidly towards his aircraft, towards his car, and there's a noise, and then he blanks out. And um, uh, when he comes to, he calls the station, asks for help. He finds himself with his car nearly across, instead of being parallel to the road, nearly across, the, running across the road, athwart the road. Uh, and the windshield, uh, let's see, the left headlight was cracked. The windshield, there was a crack in the windshield. The lights on top of his car were cracked. And there was an antenna on the top of his car, an antenna oh, yes. on the center, both of which were bent. Okay, yeah. About 45 degrees. I don't know if you're familiar with that case at all or not. Sure, yeah, that was just on... The uh, class gave yeah. a very good recitation of that sighting in his book, UFOs, the Public Deceived. And then he tries to deceive the public <laughs> by pointing out that, well, he says, either this was done by malicious UFO knots who, when zipping towards Johnson's car, reached out with a hammer and smashed the headlight and the uh, front window and bashed the... Uh, light bar on the top and then grabbed the antennas and bent them. Either that or else it was a hoax. Uh, that's what he basically says. And he leaves it at that. And the evidence for a hoax, well, he said he called up with the police department and uh, asked about Officer Johnson. He talked to somebody there and he was told, oh, yeah, Johnson might was a bit of a practical joker. You know, he might hide your coffee cup or something like that. So based on the strength of this evidence... <laughs> Uh, class basically says either it was euphonauts, in other words, in a, an indirect endorsement of this event, either it was, either it was uh, crazy euphonauts or else um, uh, Officer Johnson was uh, being a practical joker by smashing his own police car. The police department never accused Johnson of smashing his own car. Oh, by the way, the launch of the war and also the electric clock in the... Uh, uh, in his car. We're both 15 minutes slow, if I recall correctly. So mm-hmm. something strange had happened, that's for sure. Well, they, they still have the car. I mean, they still have the car in yeah, that the, condition. The, the, I the mean, Center for UFO Studies got involved with this, and they analyzed the antennas, and they found that bug tar that lies along the leading edge of the antenna mm-hmm. had not been broken, had not been distorted the way it would if somebody had grabbed the antenna now, these are stiff wire antennas. I don't know if you ever tried to bend the antenna of a CB rig or something. These are stiff wire antennas. It requires some grabbing force to be able to bend it. And uh, that would disturb the uh, bug tar, but there wasn't any disturbance as they looked at it through a microscope at it. Mm. So um, that was a case that was, you know, unexplainable. And class sort of admitted it by, by trying to make it look ridiculous. Um, the eyes of the reader, I guess. Now, many years later, I wrote to him um, suggesting that he should write to the uh, police chief of Warren Morris, Minnesota, and say that he, Philip Class, had proven that Officer Johnson had, had uh, damaged his car because there was no other explanation that was reasonable. The extraterrestrial explanation didn't make any sense. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. But Phil, Phil never did that. <laughs> Well, of course not. I guess I just have one last question, uh, which is just who in this ufological world uh, is doing what you used to do? Who, who's the new Bruce McAbee now? Is there anyone who just 
is willing to go around the world and, and look at all these cases? And well, I, that was a fluke. That was a really unique situation. I managed to. I got a trip to New Zealand and Australia and so on because of that particular case. Not many people have enough money to be able to fly around investigating stuff. Uh, but as far as your analysis is concerned, you know Jeff Sanio uh, is a, one of the, is a MUFON analyst, uh, and he's one of the guys who's willing to do things that such as commit experiment to prove you're right or wrong, <laughs> mm. like I did in the case of uh, the flashing light uh, on the top of the aircraft versus Phil Class' explanation that the light in the film was this red light. I did experiments to prove that was not true. Uh, Sanio has done experiments also. Very few people uh, go to the trouble of doing things like that, and usually the skeptics. I mean, the big problem with skeptics often is they'll propose an explanation and leave it at that. Mm. It's, it's, any explanation is better than none. And if the first explanation doesn't work, well, then you try another one. And if that doesn't work, well, you know what the, what, what the solution is then. <laughs> you keep on trying until you get something. And uh, until something begins to convince somebody, the Ken kind of Arnold sighting, you know, like has seven or eight explanations attached to it, none of which make any sense if you assume that Arnold was anywhere near right in his reporting. But uh, that's okay. There's so many explanations, the case must be explained. Well, I mean, it all makes about as much sense as the, uh, the lighthouse at Bentwaters. I mean, right. <laughs> there's one of my favorites. <laughs> Japan Airlines 1628. This is is another one that's on my website. JAL 1628, uh, November 17th, I think it was, 16 or 17, 1986. It was uh, investigated by the FAA. Unlike the um, the O'Hare Airport case in uh, in 2007, in January of of 1987, the FAA agreed to investigate the Japan Airlines case. Before the FAA investigation was done, PSYCOP, in the form of Phil, but, but PSYCOP issued an explanation saying that the pilot and co-pilot and their first engineer, the people, uh, the crew on board this aircraft flying over Alaska, had seen two extraterrestrial objects. Or extraterrestrial objects had played a role in the sighting, and it was Mars and Jupiter. This explanation was supposed to account for the pilot and co-pilot and first officer seeing rows of lights suddenly appear in front of their aircraft, two collections of lights. There were obviously two two objects, first appearing one above the other and staying that way for a couple of minutes and then rearranging in a very quick manner so they were side by side. Now, I pointed out that, granted, you might be able to see Mars and Jupiter one above the other, but it would be hard for them to reorient and become side by side <laughs> a period of time of one flight. Hey, you know what? Everybody, everybody wants the Reader's Digest version. I mean, that's that's they all want the quick and easy answer, and I think a lot of times skeptics are all too willing to give it to them. Yeah, well, Phil changed his uh, explanation after after IUR published my long paper that took up the whole issue of the <laughs> Japan Airlines flight in the, the June July I think it was issue of IUR 1987. He changed his explanation and then became moonlight reflected on clouds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and this was supposed to explain these, these lights. And, but the pilot had reported that he felt heat on the face on his face when these things appeared right in front of his aircraft, half a mile ahead or something, whatever they were. 
But, you wow. know, how do you get heat on your face from light reflected from clouds? <laughs> well, uh, Bruce, I think the last thing for tonight is uh, uh, last Friday we lost uh, Richard Hall. Yes. And I know that uh, you had a connection with him with, with uh, NICAP, I'm, I'm guessing, and I'm sure a host of other things. So what's your, uh, what's your favorite uh, Dick Hall memory? Well, uh, he changed my life. Mm-hmm quite inadvertently. I didn't realize it until long afterwards, of course. Mm-hmm. But when I was going to American University in Washington, D.C., uh, you may remember in 1965, 66, there was a, uh, a bunch of sightings in the Midwest, which uh, ultimately ended up with Congress directing the Air Force to hold an independent investigation of UFOs. Mm-hmm. So it was in the press, all these sightings and so on. I, I got... I like everybody else, read about them and so on. And I read a book called uh, um, UFO Serious Business by Frank Edwards, a couple of books by the uh, uh, APRO, uh, by Carl Lorenzen and so on. And so I was getting mildly interested in UFO sightings, but not knowing what to do about it. I, I also went and dug up a copy of Ruppelt's, uh, uh, Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, which I had originally read when I was in high school in the late 50s, I read through that again. And then in 68, well, I believe it was in the fall of 68, that Richard Hall and one of the other guys from NICAP, might have been Don Berliner, um, gave a talk at American University. Uh, so I saw this talk was advertised. I went there and heard it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember much about the talk, except for the very end, which was... Uh, NICAP, the NICAP office, which I knew there was downtown in Washington, D.C. somewhere, the NICAP people, office needed help, volunteer help in answering letters and filing things and doing whatever was necessary in, in an office. Now, if I hadn't said anything like that, my life would be different. I don't know what I would be doing. <laughs> but several weeks later, I took them up on this offer. The two guys that spoke, Richard Hall, whoever it was else, I never saw at the NICAP office. Hmm. Uh, I met Richard sometime later. Uh, what happened was I went down to NICAP. Back in those days, um, NICAP was at 1536 Connecticut Avenue, uh, just south of DuPont Circle. Now it's a whole bunch of big modern office buildings and so on, but back then it was just a, a row house, many, row, many houses in a row house along Connecticut Avenue. And 1536 was one of the row houses didn't even have a front door. You walk up some stairs, you walk into this entranceway. Uh, there was a door straight ahead and steps to the right going up, which is where an ICAP office was. And up at the top was a, a little uh, landing a- area with a naked light bulb for light in the doorway into the NICAP office. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I had read about NICAP in all these books, right? Right. NICAP was the largest civilian UFO organization and certainly the most publicly self-publicizing organization with Kehoe uh, pushing on Congress to have sightings uh, uh, for years of the pushing, pressing Congress to have an independent investigation. And now, in 1968, there was an independent investigation going on at the uh, University of Colorado, what became a condom study. Right. And then back in those days, you know, for a couple of years there, it was okay to talk about UFOs without having a bag over your head. <laughs> Even in Science Magazine, a lot of it was skeptical about it. 
Yeah. So uh, I opened the door to the NICAP office, and there's books on the floor and books on shelves and books here and there and stuff scattered around and an old broken-down secretary running the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> and secretary, Isabel Davis, was actually a very intelligent lady who was able to hold this whole thing together by herself. Um, but she needed help. She couldn't spend all her time answering letters, and she needed a uh, what we would now call an FAQ, uh, frequently asked questions type of sheet that she could simply fold, uh, trifold a uh, piece of paper that had all the answers you wanted into it, and put an envelope and mail it out. Because she would get letters saying, "Please send me everything you have on UFOs." The <laughs> response is, "Okay, send a truck." Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. Uh, because I went there, I had access to the files. There, in another room from where she was sitting, was the file, the desk of Major Keyhoe, who was mm. never there. He had been fired by that time <laughs> by the Board of Control of NICAP for basically not being a good, uh, uh, his economics were poor. <laughs> he uh. Uh, didn't know how to manage anything or raise money well enough. So anyway, uh, there were the files of NICAP, 10,000 sightings all filed away and lots of other stuff, too. Uh, and based on what I knew a little bit about UFOs, Isabel Davis asked me to write a fact, uh, an FAQ sheet. I did many years, several years later, when we were moving the whole NICAP uh, filing system and books and stuff, I came upon one of those sheets. I don't know if I still got it somewhere or not. Typed on a little a typewriter that uses miniature type so she could pack a lot of stuff on one page. <laughs> the other thing that happened was, because I showed up in the NICAP office, I was invited to uh, be in the local subcommittee of NICAP. NICAP had local subcommittees in various places around the United States. They were the people who actually did the investigations. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, able to go on some investigations right there in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, actually, one of them was uh, uh, south of Washington, D.C., south of Frederick, near the laboratory where I ended up working for the last uh, ten, or 10 years or so, mm-hmm. oddly enough. And another case took place way out in the uh, Shenandoah Valley, uh, I don't know, 60 or 70 miles west of uh, the D.C. area. But these two cases in particular, and there were a few others, uh, it was clearly not misidentifications, hoaxes, or delusions, or somebody's trying to make money or whatever. Uh, they were good, solid cases, and pretty weird. <clears throat> so that sort of got me hooked. Dick Hall and, and whoever was the other guy hadn't showed up in... Uh, American University in 68, I, quite likely I never would have become a UFO investigator. So it's all their fault then? It's all their fault. <laughs> it really, I mean, I, I knew that uh, Mr. All had been sick and, and all, but uh, I don't know, he's one of those guys, you just think he's always going to be around, you know, and it's like, uh, I started thinking the other night, I first met you when I was 23 years old, and uh, I'm 42. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still here. <laughs> well, hang around. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, well, you just realize. I, I mentioned about Richard is uh, with respect to the fund for UFO research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, NICAP shriveled and was basically out of the picture by 1980. Uh, new was coming along. Um, but Richard had long complained, and so did everybody else, that there's no. There's no money in UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get a, you can't write to the National Science Foundation and say, "Hey, I got a project I want to do on UFOs. 
if the project uh, looks like it's going to say something positive about UFOs, then there's no way you're going to get any money for it. Right. Um, but the question was, how do we do something to get money into the organs, into UFOs, and, and make it scientific? And uh, we started batting this around at uh, general uh, meetings we would have, not fund fun meetings because they didn't exist yet, but uh, the Fort Fortean organization had monthly meetings and so on <clears throat> in the area. And um, I always thought that it was Dick Hall's idea, but he claimed it was my idea. That's what he told everybody. I don't know whose idea it was, but what what occurred to me uh, was we could do something like the Nas National Science Foundation, where the National Science Foundation, of course, is funded by Congress, so they got a huge amount of money. We would have to be funded by donations, but if we could collect donations together for specific projects, see, the idea was to uh, start an organization which was project-oriented. Somebody would write a proposal to do some work. That proposal had to say what the work was, what value it was going to be, how much it was going to cost, how long it would take, and so on. A whole bunch of questions that you had to answer. And if the uh, and then this would be evaluated by the, the members of the Fund of Beautiful Research, a five-member executive committee in the D.C. area, and ten members scattered throughout the country uh, as the national board. And if you got two-thirds or whatever it was of uh, positive votes, then uh, it would be funded if we had the money. Wow. Uh, so uh, this was not like any previous UFO organization. We were not publishing a, a newsletter. We would publish specific reports when they were finished, and that was it. Right. And uh, we were fortunate that um, one of our members knew a lady who was, I guess, a millionaire living out in Los Angeles who... Uh, um, basically told us, I'll give you 6000 bucks a year, huh. uh, forever, whatever. She did that for two years, and then she died. Oh, but that 12000 bucks gave us a start, because we were able to pay for publicity and publicate and uh, do a few little projects and, and advertise that we were raising money for other projects. And we actually raised a considerable amount of money. And in 1987, we put on the, uh, the MUFON... Uh, annual symposium in Washington, D.C. It was the international, we called it the International MUFON Symposium because it was international. It was the first time anybody had tried inviting people. We had Australia, India, Brazil, Chile, uh, right. England, Canada, you know, a whole bunch of different countries represented. Uh, Japan was there. Um, people from all over the place. And we managed to do this because uh, of our donation uh, the way we were set up as a charity and uh, accepting donations, we raised, I don't know, $50,000 roughly to, to pull it wow. off. That's fantastic. Yep. So anyway, that, that was, I always said it was Richard's idea. He said it was my idea. I, I'm happy to bounce it back to him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bruce, again, there's a, there's an hour and a half gone that uh, uh, we didn't have enough time again, so... We're going to have to have you come back in a, in a month or so uh, to 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 hit and tack one to the next one if you're up for it. Yeah, um, Japan Airlines. There you go. I, that's uh, that'll be the next one. Uh, but anyway, thanks for uh, coming on and and shooting it with us uh, on the New Zealand case. I'm sure that yeah. uh, I'm sure yeah. we, you're going to get some uh, you're going to get some letters sent your way and questions for that. And I mean, I I think uh, personally, I'd like to see. 
um, the whole of that footage presented somewhere where you could see it oh, beginning to end. It's a lot of film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, and I, well, everybody's welcome to go to my website, and there are several articles on the New Zealand case, including one that's a comprehensive history of the sightings, uh, a word document that you can download and read, and uh, then there are several files, which are one called the Squid Boat File, which describes the uh, the sighting just out of New, Ze- New Zealand, just out of Christchurch, that has been quote identified unquote as a squid boat, and then um, the, another file on the flashing light. These are all on my website, www.brumac.8k.com. That's B-R-U-M-A-C dot number eight letter K dot com. Brumac.8k.com. You go to that website. There's a hundred megabytes worth of a uh, case analyses there. And we'll have that actually posted also on our front page, so you can link right uh, and go right to Bruce's site for that. Mm-hmm. Bruce, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Great time. This is Mark Nesbitt. I wrote The Ghosts of Gettysburg. You are listening to Paratopia with Jeff and Jeremy. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine. magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. Eerie Radio, the endeavor for esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. So, Jeff. Yes. I I thought it was um, pretty smooth the way you... uh, Ask Dr. McAbee not to die. <laughs> oh, you know, and you know, and he, he 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 interrupted me before I got a chance to say we're all getting older, and it, and w- what I was getting at there. <laughs> shut the fuck up. But nobody what more was, so than Bruce McAbee. Is that what? I, what I was no. What I was getting into right there was that you never realize until somebody like Dick Hall passes away. You never realize. You know that how much time you've actually been in it. It doesn't feel like it's been that long for me, but uh, you know, like I said, I met Maccabee when I was uh, twenty-three years old, and, and now I'm forty-two. You know, we got to turn the cameras off while I do this because <laughs> now just let's strike. Let's just start this whole no, thing. No, over. no, 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 no. We're starting good. this. Over. We're good. starting that this. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking jackass. All right, come on. Start it over. Three, two, one. So there you have it, Jeremy. The definitive words of Dr. Bruce McAbee on the New Zealand case. And that's some 
That's some deep stuff. What is wrong with you tonight? I'm looking at you on the camera. I'm sorry. And you're just, what are you, drunk? I mean, what's going on? I'm sorry. What are you laughing about? I don't know. I'm a goofy guy. I just laugh at shit. (laughs) Jesus Christ. We couldn't do a serious show. Yes, we could. Yeah, everybody says, oh, the comedy, the comedy, boo, freaking who? The comedy, the joking. This is a serious subject. Let's be serious. We couldn't do a serious show with you around. Sorry. And certainly not with with webcams going at the same time we're discussing, so it seems like you're right outside the window from me. Uh, all right. I'll try to keep it to a minimum. Get it together, Vanny. Get it together. So, uh, did you learn anything? Um, <laughs> you know what it is? I have the giggles. Is that what it is? I, I don't know. No, it's, well, like it's not going to let me stop. Okay, then I'll, then I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we have to start again? Is that what has to happen? <laughs> no, let me, let me tell you what I learned. I learned that. Maccabee is on his way out. <laughs> no. Uh. God. No. <laughs> let me let me let me make my point abundantly clear here. When I said I met Maccabee, Director Maccabee at twenty three years old, and now I'm forty two, and he said, Well, I'm still here, I was like, nah, that's not what I was getting at. What I was getting at is is that you become so engrossed in this subject and the people in it, in talking to them, meeting, going to meetings and and, and doing podcasts and all that, you never really realize that it's been that long. I mean, you, 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 when somebody like Dick Hall passes away, you never realize, Jesus, you know, this guy had been in this since, you know, the 50s. Uh, I mean, how quickly it goes. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that, you know, I was only 23 when I met Bruce McAbee, and now I'm 42. And it's like, it just, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's just weird to me. Do investigators like him not exist anymore, or do cases like that not exist anymore? I mean, is this stuff, does it go in, in, in evolving chunks? Was there a time when there was a lot of radar and, you know, missing, missing planes and whatever, that, that sort of thing, and then, and then that stopped happening, and then it became something else? Uh, hmm. Or is that just a narrative, like you would see in the miniseries Taken that doesn't really reflect reality. Uh, well, I mean, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a whole lot of people like him. I think, like you said, Jeff Sanya would be one of the guys who will definitely do the work. Um, and, and, and again, he's been into it an absurdly long time as well. But I, do cases like that happen anymore? I don't, I don't know. I don't know that we get information like we should, like the, like, Look at O'Hare. Look, look how long it was between, you know, the actual event and then the reporting of it. Um, about like it Leslie was, Leslie Keen's big to do, and she had the what was it, the Israeli general, right? Uh, but what when, what year was that from? Wasn't that from back then? That wasn't. I couldn't tell you. No, it wasn't anything new. I mean, I, and you would think with the advent of the internet, we'd have like, you know, instant notification of such things when that happens, but we don't, doesn't seem to happen that way. Um, well, I mean, which could be anywhere, you know, you could, you could attribute that to anything from, uh, 
um, you know, a proprietary attitude over a case to stop it. Just stop it, would you? You're talking to me? I didn't even <laughs> yes. do anything that time. You're sitting there with this smug smile on your face. <laughs> That's and, my smile. <laughs> well, stop it. Um, <laughs> God damn it. I, I didn't even mean to uh, do anything that time. Um, are you all right tonight? I mean, is everything okay? <laughs> yes, I'm fine. Um, I mean, you would think with the with the internet that we would get this ins- information instantly, but we don't. And uh, maybe that has something to do with, like I've said before, like these investigators, some take like a proprietary attitude with this where they don't share it openly with the public um, to be able to get in when it's still hot. You know, it's usually a year later or two years later or whatever. So I don't know. I don't know that there's anybody doing what Bruce did, which was, you know, sounds to me like just kind of drop, almost drop everything and just go contact the right people and, uh, and I don't think a lot of people have his credentials either. I mean, Jesus. I mean, how many how many uh, optical physicists do you know out there in UFO land? None, <laughs> as far as I know. So I mean, I, I think he's a I think he's a unique guy. And uh, it's always um, you know we've had him on twice, and and I always um, well I should say I always both times I'm always stuck with the impression that 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 those days are over. You know that it really is all. Uh, opinionated stuff like I, I'm trying to think. I mean, if if there are UFO specials on, where you go to an expert, you know, you got a fifty fifty shot of that expert being like David Serrata, <laughs> you know. And that didn't seem to be the case before. It seemed like you would always see Maccabee on TV, or you know, somebody of that caliber, somebody who actually investigated things and didn't have sort of flights of fancy about what this stuff represented. And uh, yeah. I just, I don't know. I mean, is that even out there? Of course, there hasn't been a really in-depth UFO special probably since that, um, what was it, Peter Jennings? Was that what it was? Yeah, that farce, right. Yeah, that farce. But even that farce had uh, some credible researchers in it, did it not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, But those days uh, are over. It's all, it's all... I I think... You're right when you say, like, the internet sort of killed this. It's all, like, opinion and, and whoever can sort of raise themselves to the top of the heap in popularity um, is going to get on TV. And now the person who does that is pretty much only the person who has sort of a lame answer, (laughs) you know, an awful answer to it all. Um, Well, I think, uh, I think Dr. Maccabee's always been pretty careful in how he evaluates a case and that shit takes time, man. You know, you you don't just uh, turn around and level some kind of answer. You know, two weeks after something happens, and uh, and unfortunately, I think you know we're in this age of instant gratification where everybody wants an answer now. Or you know, if if it's a, a week long into an investigation, they want to know well, where are you at with this? What's going on? Back before the internet, I think Doctor Mackey had plenty of time to sit down and critically evaluate what he was doing, write up the paper, cover all his bases, and. Uh, and then publish it, and nobody really batted an eye for that kind of stuff. Nowadays, it's like you're under the gun the minute you get involved. So, um, I mean, I know from experience that uh, you know when I jumped into O'Hare, it was it was a little over 48 hours straight, where I'm just you know we're gathering all of these pictures off the net that were uh, the majority of them were hoaxes, and uh, 
you know, not only trying to evaluate the single reasonably credible picture we did have, but then to go back and try and find backplates for the hoaxes that were just all of a sudden just proliferating everywhere on the internet and coming to above top secret. So, you know, that, that kind of, I hate working like that because you, you don't sleep, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and everybody's breathing down your neck for what is it? What do you think? What do you think? And, you know, uh, I think you're right. I think those days are pretty much over where you could take your time and, and, and travel to, um, you know, whatever town to visit whatever witnesses to whatever case. And I don't know. I think those days are largely over unless you're willing to uh, spend a whole lot of money. Independently wealthy people, I suppose, can jump on a plane and fly to O'Hare Lickety Split and probably catch somebody there. But The, the good sort of part is, of that is that things have sort of denigrated for the skeptics, too, where now you see a skeptic on TV and, you know, there's also a good 50-50 shot that it'll be you know, the laughable dude with the bad toupee who's on Larry King. What's his name? You know who I'm talking about? Is it Oberg? Who is it? No, James Oberg is the uh, the guy who usually talks about the NASA footage. You're talking about uh, um, Magaha. Magaha. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I just, uh, I, I can't. I can't help but laugh when he when he puts on his uh, his smug smile and, and his head kind of does this. <laughs> kind of wobbles back and forth because he's so sure of himself. Um, I mean, yeah, I think I think that that has gotten uh, pretty lame in recent years. I, th- I think uh, I think back in the day it used to be a little bit more evenly matched, but I, I think nowadays it's the, the the skeptic camp has definitely faltered as far as. UFOs go. I mean, I think they I think they focus a lot more these days, at least from what I've read around the net. Um, the the psychic scams and the uh, John Edwards and the um, who else? Who's the who's the who's the woman with the voice? Um, Sylvia Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're 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 really hot on that. So eh, whatever. I mean, I, the whole face of this has changed since probably the eighties for that matter. And, uh, it's, it's just not the same as it used to be. I mean, a lot of stuff has changed and, uh, I don't know. I think, uh, well, I think Rich Hall got very disgusted with it towards the end of his life just because of what it had evolved into. Maybe when we don't hear from a lot of these veteran researchers, I think that's probably what's going on. I mean, uh, valet walked away for a number of years and, uh, yeah, I mean, I I thought he was coming back some time ago, but I haven't heard much from him. And uh, if Doctor Valet is listening, we want you on the show. <laughs> Contact the show. Uh, I mean, this is what we're seeing, though. We're seeing a lot of these credible old guys that, uh, that know their stuff are just dropping away from it because it's just uh, you know it's 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 gone in the toilet. So I guess we just keep doing what we're doing and see what happens. Speaking of dropping in the toilet, no, no, no. Speaking of face changes, mm-hmm. uh, you've got uh, bruises. Yeah. Here, explain. The, you're not going to show these to people, but you showed them to me, and they're yeah. pretty striking. You have bruises on either side of your head uh, by the temple, and you just woke up with these this morning. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. Uh... Do they hurt? No. You press on them? I actually had them one time before several years ago. I don't know how many years ago it's been. 
I, I don't know. The only thing I can tell you, uh, and, and this this sounds a little a la Streber to me, is that Lisa a couple nights ago came bolting down from the upstairs after she had gone to bed, and I was laying there watching TV, and she said something's outside, and and I jumped up and uh, g- grabbed the nine out of the, the cabinet and. <laughs> And <laughs> went outside, and there was nothing there to see. Uh, I walked all around. She said that something was uh, uh, moving around the yard and banging into things like the trash can and the uh, the studio building and the gazebo and, and the fence. And she could hear this like something was banging around, but we didn't see anything. Uh, and I think it was night before last. She was outside at the gazebo with the dog. Uh, she usually sits out in the evening and, and reads her book out there. She came in with the dog, uh, again, just about white as a sheet, and she said, something growled at me out there. And, uh, I mean, just for everybody's sake of argument here, we live in suburbia, <laughs> and uh, none of our neighbors have dogs. Uh, could be a raccoon, could be a groundhog, which I have seen out there. But I do have a beagle, and the beagle is uh, an avid hunter. And I would think that if there was a growling going on outside, that the dog would immediately know where it was coming from and and eat what was ever was growling. <laughs> um, and uh, and, you know, and you've, you've seen her. She's a pretty sharp dog. So I don't know what to make of that. Um, as far as anything really weird going on, I mean, I could explain that as animal disturbances, but as far as anything really weird going on, I got nothing. I mean, I don't. Uh, uh, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, remember early on when I first moved in here, I heard the that humming, that undulating hum, uh, for a couple of nights. I, I haven't even heard that, and I and I'm 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 going to bed earlier. I'm not staying up until three and four in the morning anymore. But uh, I got I got I got no. Tale to tell. There's I, I there's nothing. I I've had some really bizarre dreams lately. Aside from that, and they're not anything ufologically related, even remotely. Uh, they're just bizarre and disjointed. So I, I I got nothing for you there. So I don't know. I just woke up and there they were. They'll probably be gone tomorrow. <laughs> Last time I got them, they went away really quick. And they're not actually on the temples. They're on the bone right there, like the. Uh, like where my brow bone comes around, that's where they are. So I don't know. Uh, it's not like I closed my head in a car door or shut it in the refrigerator. So I, I don't know. Been a while since I've had anything like that. How about you? Any weirdness to report? I understand you uh, saw a black oval slide down your bathroom wall. Yeah. Well, it was not down my bathroom wall. I have a um, my living room. Opens into this small hallway, and and um, you know, right there is the bathroom. Um, uh, so sitting in my easy chair, I see a black oval, kind of large, like the size of a squirrel, come down from. There's a um, there's a ceiling window in there, so basically coming down from that, um, so it would be in front of the shower curtain. Um, so out of my peripheral vision, I see this, and I turn, and there it is like sort of falling down but not making a noise or seeming to hit the floor. So I get up and check it out thinking, I mean, it was definitely something. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it was very strange. So I, I just went looking thinking like maybe I'm going to see a giant cockroach or, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine what else it would be except a bug that, except that it was huge. 
And huh. it just looked like a black oval. So, you know, I looked around, I didn't see anything, of course, and then, you know, I thought maybe, okay, it's uh, maybe a bird flew over the window and and there was a shadow that dropped down, and I've just never noticed it before. Uh-huh. Uh, so I came back and sat in my chair, and I thought about calling you, and then I was like, mm, nah, I'm not going to call him over every little thing. So as I'm sitting there, coming from my bedroom from uh, the floor, like just above the floor, um, heading toward that hallway where the bathroom is, um, uh-huh. was like an arc, like a perfectly curved arc that seemed to move <laughs> from... Uh-huh. From there to there, and, it, and it, so the arc was like like the the bow of the arc would be the thing that was moving sideways, like the front of the object or whatever it was, and sort of inside the arc were uh, almost a couple of round, almost like sparkler type uh, things, except not shiny like sparklers, but that same sort of I don't know, almost tinsely coming Spikes. out of the center effect. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh So I don't know what that is, but it, I mean, it looked clear. Uh, it looked like, you know, I did call you after that, and I, I said it looked sort of, I mean, the only thing I can even compare it to is maybe, like, some sort of predator invisibility cloak or something. I mean, it, it just looked like that sort of invisible, like you could just make out the outlines of things. Huh. Um, and that just sort of, like, went really fast, just sort of. How how tall was that, would you say? That was not um, tall at all. I mean, that was probably maybe the same size. As the oval, I mean, it didn't, so, I mean, whatever it was, it didn't have wheels or legs or anything like that, so, but it wasn't above the, um, I've got this little glass, um, you know, cabinet thing that the TV sits on, and it wasn't above that, I mean, it was was low to the ground. Okay. Would you say that the, uh, the oval thing in the, in the one room was maybe a foot and a half long, or bigger? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it was bigger. I would say it was okay. about as big as a squirrel or, you know, something okay. like that. But oval, I mean, like, there were no appendages on it. There was no it was right. just black oval. Did you try to touch it? It was almost like a perfectly oval-shaped glob of something, like, sort of dropped down silently and then disappeared. You, did, you, did, you didn't try to grab it or touch it or anything? Well, it wasn't near me. It was like I, I had to get up and, you know, walk across the room oh, and okay. go in there. Um, huh. What did you do that day? I mean, beforehand. Nothing. Anything out of the unusual? Well, the weird thing is, I did have... Now, they were just dreams, but I did have UFO dreams they don't normally have. Um, That's neither here nor there, but I I did wake up really late, (laughs) which is, you know, not like me, believe it or not. Um, All right. Yeah, that was the day you woke up after 1 o'clock, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to bed sort of normal time, and then I woke up around 1, and I was like, what? Huh. Ridiculous, but I just attributed that to the weather, because if the weather, if it's going to rain, I usually get really tired out of nowhere. Like, I, I okay. sort of predict when a big storm is coming. Um, huh. And I think it did rain, you know, it wasn't a huge storm. Okay. So, I just attributed it to that, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, what that was. Very strange. I'll, I'll, on a side note, now that I'm thinking about it, did you, did you, did you make note of... Uh, Fogarty, the guy on the uh, the reporter on the New Zealand case, that when Maccabee saw him, his he was he was a mess. He was a zombie, <laughs> and apparently he, if I understood Bruce right, the the pilot and Fogarty were then divorced 
Didn't sound like it went too well for them, did it? <laughs> After all that. Yeah. Anti-structure doesn't like structure. <laughs> uh, there it is. Just wanted to point that out. Make mental note. Probably George Hansen fans out there. Yeah. I mean, hey, there it is. I mean, you, you want your... Uh... I will say, I was the other day when that happened. I was in a really sort of weird state of mind in a way. I mean, like you had said, hey, why don't you just turn on a camera and have it sit there? Yeah, did you do that? No, I didn't do anything. And as you were saying it, I was thinking, I don't want to do anything. I just want to sit here. <laughs> I just I don't even want to move. But it was like, that was my attitude all day. Is like, I don't want to do anything. I just want to sit here. <laughs> huh. like, I couldn't be bothered. Like, if that had been an alien that ran across my floor, I still wouldn't have been bothered to, like, get a camera and hunt it down. Like, you know what? That's know what? I feel like it. That is so one of the things that that I've noticed about this. Uh, we are now recording another show, and I still haven't put those pictures up from two years ago. <laughs> which, 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 Gareth, if you're listening, <laughs> God damn it, man! I swear to you, I will get these up because I actually do have them uploaded. All I have to do is copy the damn link and paste it in the message board. So hopefully, by the time this airs, they will be up for everybody to see. It's I think it's 13 consecutive shots. Uh, I think we're all out of the camera. I don't think I sized them or anything. So they're big, so be forewarned. And I think at the same time that I post those, I'm actually going to email the link to Dr. Maccabee and, and see what he says. Because I spoke to him about these photographs, not at this past X conference, but the one before. <laughs> hmm. And never – it wasn't that I couldn't be bothered. It was just – I don't know. Just everything gets in the way, and you get occupied with other things, and other things come up. Not wanna is greater than the urge to do it. Yeah, unknown fucking reason. Yes, yes. I'm still of the opinion that that is something in this that that is doing that. I, I think that that is part of this whole phenomena. Is is that you you hunt for the evidence, and then once you get it. All of a sudden, the drive just drops away from you like, like sweat on a hot day. You just you can't be bothered. You just don't care for some reason. All of a sudden, and it doesn't matter how good or how bad the evidence is or mundane. You just kind of drop away from it. And uh, and I've noticed that about not just myself, but a hell of a lot of other cases that have come up uh, over the years that uh, that I've looked at. These people, you know, show me a piece of footage, and I'm like, wow, this is. When it, when was this shot? Oh, two years ago, three years ago. Like, and we're just seeing this now. What's the problem? You know, oh, I don't know, man. You know, I just I don't know. So, I definitely think there's something. Uh, I think there's definitely something to that. And uh, you know, so I w- I will get those pictures up there. And and again. You you guys make of them what you will. I have no idea what it was. I don't pretend to know. The only thing I can tell you about that sighting is that, and I probably described this before, but since I'm going to put them up, I'm actually going to do it. Just finished up a yard sale at my mother's house, uh, Baltimore County, and uh, again, a pretty suburbanite area. Uh, my wife and I went over to sit down and have a uh, a, a glass of water on mom's front step 
I guess something caught my eye right above us, and when I looked up, here is this oval-shaped thing, pretty much stationary, uh, didn't seem to be moving. I, I looked up at it, and I just for a split second, my mind kind of went, get it? And when I saw a glint of sun off of it, so it obviously moved a little bit, I jumped up, I ran in the house, I grabbed Mom's camera, which was right inside the kitchen door uh, on a shelf with the microwave. I picked it up. I ran outside, and I just started clicking away. And by the time I got back out, uh, it had moved. My parents live three to four city blocks away from the Beltway that runs around Baltimore. And uh, I would say it was heading in that direction, which would have meant that from where we were originally sitting, it was heading left uh, from our vantage point at first sight. And I just shot until it was a pinpoint of dot. I'd say it was moving fairly slowly to about the point where it got over top of the neighbor's house or maybe across the street, just barely. And then it seemed to rock backwards a little bit and then forward. And that's when it really started to pick up speed. And it was just, you know, like I said, every time the camera would charge, I'd pull the shutter and and try and center it as best I could. It's definitely round, uh, definitely like sort of pancake-ish. And um, and that's all I know to say about it. So you guys have a look at it, blow it up, do whatever you want. Just throwing it out there. I'm posting a link with with to, to all of them. It's a folder on MediaFire, so uh, you can download all of them and uh, and make note that the date that is stamped on the bottom corner of the pictures is not correct because uh, I, I never set the the time on Mom's camera or the date rather when she got it, like she bugged me to do. I'd have to go back in my emails and figure out uh, what the exact date is, but I, I, I can surely post that with the pictures. But just make note that the date is not correct. And Speaking that's it. Speaking of dates, Jeff, next mm-hmm. Tuesday, you and I have a date with MavisIncarnate.com. That's right. Uh, that's if you can't get enough of us and you want to uh, text chat with us for, I don't know, an hour or however long it takes... Uh, Tuesday, the 28th, that's, uh, next Tuesday, you will get your chance at www.mabisincarnate.com. Jeff and I will be, uh, taking your questions live at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, baby. So come on down! Yeah, that's all I got. Okay. Well, thanks again to Dr. Bruce McAbee. Always a pleasure to talk to Dr. Bruce and, and thanks to everybody for listening this week. I guess we're done, right? Yeah, that's, that's it. Is that it? You've seen weird shit in your apartment, and I got bruises on my skull. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.